Welcome to Branch Out, a connection builders podcast, helping middle market professionals connect, grow, and excel in their careers. Through a series of conversations with leading professionals, we share stories and insights to take your career to the next level. A successful career begins with meaningful connections. Hey everyone, welcome to the Branch Out Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Drost. Today we welcome Paul Abrazano, a Managing Director and Transaction Advisory Global Practice Leader at Alvarez & Marsal, a top consulting firm with more than 5,000 team members around the globe. Paul shares his thoughts on what drives success in today's competitive environment and advice for young professionals looking to advance their career. I hope you all enjoy. Connect and grow your network. We are on LinkedIn. Search for Connection Builders. Paul, welcome to the Branch Out Podcast. Excited to have you here today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. So, Paul, maybe to lead off for our guest today, can you share just a little about who you are, your background, your story, and kind of what got you to where you are today? Sure, sure. Happy to. So, I joined my current firm, Alvarez & Marsal, a little over 16 years ago to actually co-found our transaction advisory group, which I lead now globally today. Prior to that, I was a partner at EY in New York, and I ran EY's New York middle market private equity practice. My whole career has been in New York in the New York City area. And prior to that, I had spent a little over 10 years at Arthur Anderson. So I have a little bit of a unique perspective, 14, 15 plus years, roughly half my professional career in the big four between Anderson and EY, and the other half of my career at Alvarez and Marsal. So I've kind of been on, on both sides of the equation here. Of my 30-year career, 25 plus years have been in the transaction advisory business. So I've been doing this type of business a fairly long time. I went to school in upstate New York, Binghamton University, bachelor's of science degree in accounting. I uh, met my wife at Binghamton as well. This year is our 25th wedding anniversary. So uh, congratulations. Amazing. Yes, <laughs> it's amazing. So when I, you know, I, I got a bachelor of science in accounting, I'm a US CPA, started my career. I interned actually at Arthur Anderson after my junior year and graduated and went to work there. And I started like most people did, you know, these transaction businesses didn't exist in the late 80s, early 90s. So I went into audit like everybody else in New York. I was in the commercial products and services division, but actually I probably worked on what was the coolest thing you could ever audit, which was the NFL, the National Football Bowl. That's cool. So I audited the NFL for several years. I audited the Super Bowl, never got to go, but I audited a bunch of times, which was great. And early in my career, I was probably a senior associate around there, I saw a bunch of people, mostly partners in the office of Arthur Anderson, kind of running around a little bit with a little bit of a sense of urgency. And I remember saying, what are those people doing? And someone said, they're doing deals. I'm like, deals? Like, I didn't even know what that was at the time, but it sounded cool. It sounded better than audit. And I just literally went and knocked on one of the partner's doors. And I said, you don't know me, but I heard you guys are doing deals and I want it. And he was like, okay, yeah, whatever. So in those days, the way when, when transactional work and private equity in particular started to come on the scene, you know, depending on the industry of the target, the auditors in that industrial group would do the deal. So I was in like brick and mortar manufacturing and a lot of the deals were in that space. And since it was relatively new work, the firm viewed it as high risk. It was done by the partners only. And I asked to be in that group and literally, you know, I carried in those days, you carried the bags. I literally carried the bags for like two years, like files, data rooms were manual. I was carrying trunks and bags, banker boxes, banker boxes, you know, audit kits. Like I carried that stuff for like a year or two. But 
what I didn't realize at the time, the partners were taking me out on deals and I wasn't qualified to do anything, but I was sitting, learning, listening while they were meeting with management teams, doing financial diligence. I would help put analyses together for the reports. So I was leverage for a lot of those partners. And over time, you know, I kind of got into it, but then the firm decided, I guess it was like 19, early to mid nineties, Arthur Anderson said, you know what, this could be a business. And literally they took the 10 people in audit, mostly partners, and the 10 people in tax in New York who were doing this work. And they said, we're going to put you in a separate division. And we don't even know if it's going to work. So we're calling it the Financial Buyers Initiative. It wasn't even like a business then. And it was almost all partners. So when they spun out of audit, I was left. And then on the way out, one of the partners like, oh, yeah, and that guy, Aversano, he's with us. Come in. So again, I didn't know at the time. I landed up spinning out. I was the youngest person in the New York City office of Arthur Anderson in the Financial Buyers Initiative. And, you know, just because I was carrying bags for a year or two, right? And I happened to knock on that one guy's door. And then M&A started to take off, particularly private equity. I wrote it through the dot-com boom. I was at Anderson to the very end at Enron. I went with my team to EY, still in transactions. Was a partner at EY, still doing transactions, you know? And then I left in 2006 to join and start the business at A&M. And then the financial crisis hit. I rode through that. Then I've ridden through COVID and now everything else. So I've seen a lot of ups and downs, but I, you know, in hindsight, you know, I happened to get in in this business really in the early stages of it, at least when it comes to professional services. And it's been a tremendous benefit for me. I've probably worked on over a thousand deals during that period of time. And I want to, I want to really flag what you said there. You had the confidence, you knocked on someone's door, you, you looked for an opportunity. It just goes to show that that can go a long way in, in opening up opportunities that I'm sure at that time you could have never even imagined. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like when I was in college, I didn't even know transaction advisory or I never even heard of private equity. I don't know what deals were. I just, it sounded good. <laughs> like, oh, they're doing deals. I'm like, yeah, whatever that is. Great. Sign me up. And I just, you know, but you know, it was interesting because I remember in those days, all the staff would sit in one big conference room and the audit staff would be done six, seven o'clock and they'd be going out for happy hour drinks. We were all, you know, young in the city and I was always stuck late. In those days I was faxing. I was photocopying and they're like, Paul, what are you doing? Like, don't you want to like, why do you want to do that? And I'm like, listen, I, I like these guys. I want to do deals and this is what I have to do. So I missed a lot of happy hours and stuff, but you know, it goes to that point we were talking about where, you know, I, I don't mind doing the things that most people won't or don't do or don't want to do to get to places where most people aren't. Right. And I think, you know, I was very fortunate. And then as the group started to grow and once we spun out, a lot of people wanted to get in, but I was already in, right? Because I knocked on that door and I carried the bags for a few years, right? Whatever it takes. You put the work in and made that happen. So maybe let, let's talk into the audience for a minute here. Before we jumped on recording, Paul and I were chatting just about some the lessons he's learned and things that when he looks back on his career that really stand out to him. And you said something that I thought was really impactful. And, and you said to me that at the end of the day, in professional services, really two things that matter, clients and people. Can you peel that apart and, and just share that what that means to you and, and why you've learned that lesson, how you've seen that come to play in, in your career? Yeah. So everybody's got limited time, right? Limited resources. So you want to spend your time on where you think you can be the most impactful. And when you look at a professional services business, it's not that hard to figure out. We don't make widgets. We don't manufacture anything. We sell people and people's expertise, right? So that's the product. That's what you're developing, right? So, you know, I think one of the most important things we do in a professional services firm, clearly at A&M, is how we hire and who we hire. We have very strict hiring requirements. 
long interview processes, but I like to think we're selecting the best and the brightest, right? So there's no substitute for spending time with people. So the people are the most important asset, but it's not just hiring right and getting them here. Once they're here, you have to retain them and treat them right. And I coach a lot of people, even some of my younger partners. And what I tell them on the people side of things, you know, if you look at your career, right, and anybody can apply this, I apply it to myself. If you like what you do for a living, and most people do like doing deals, right? If you like what you do for a living and you like who you do it with, surround yourself with people that you like. But also that third leg of that stool is if you feel like you're being treated fairly by the organization. Now, that is a variety of different things. Compensation is one part of it, but it's also learning and development, advancement, opportunities, right, to do the things you want to do. But if you like what you do, like who you do it with, and you feel like you're being treated fairly in all respects, what else could you ask for in a career, right? And that's sort of the people side of things, right? So it's great to put up outstanding financial results, but if you're doing it at a high level of people churn, that's not the right way to do it. It's not long-term sustainable, in my opinion. So there's the people side of it, and that's what we're delivering, hiring right, but also treating them right so that they stay with us, right? Hire the best people. They do the best work, right? Everybody makes the most money, and you treat them right, and then round and round you go. It's like a cycle you got to stay on, right? But then on the flip side of it, I mean, the client side is a little more obvious, right? Obviously, clients are, are what pays the bills, right? And I remember way back in the Arthur Anderson days, and maybe this is not a good thing, but we used to get in the olden days, pay stubs, right? You get your pay stub physically mailed to you. And on the top of it, it would say your earning statement. And it would say brought to you by our clients. That's what it said on everybody's earning statement. So they never wanted anybody to forget that it was the clients who are handing you this. And what's funny is I see, you know, having worked in several firms, there's a lot of internal initiatives, right? internal, people will get together to strategize, you know, try to penetrate a client, account teams, internal strategy, all different people. I'm like, I don't want people inwardly focused. Like I said, you know, I'd be in these big planning meetings with 20 people to go after an elephant account. And I'd be like, how about somebody just pick up the phone and call them, right? Like, let's just go over there, right? And and talk to somebody. So that's what I mean is having that client focus in my world and what our mission statement at A&M is, we tell people that our role is simple. Our job is to help our clients be successful investors. That's it. Whatever that takes, we're going to help them do. Even if it's something that A&M doesn't do, right? I'm not looking to sell A&M. I'm looking to serve a client, right? So what I do, we're at a stage now where I just go over there and say, how can we be helpful, right? What can we do to be helpful to you? Because we do a lot of things at A&M and there's a lot of different ways we add value. And I worry about serving clients rather than selling them. I don't want to be, no offense, but I'm not an investment banking coverage guy. I'm a service provider serving a client, you know, and the sophisticated clients will see through that if you're just pitching and selling all the time. I mean, think about it. Nobody wants to hear that. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to be a salesperson. I want to serve a client need. So if you focus on serving your clients with the right people, I mean, that's how you're successful in professional services. So when I look at myself as a leader of a global business at A&M, where should I be spending my time that's of most value to the organization? Clients and people. That's it. So that's kind of our approach. If it doesn't touch clients or people, I try not to get involved in it. You know, I have other people who can handle the financial reporting and all the other things we need to do. Those are important, but it doesn't necessarily require my time. So I would say probably 90% of my time is clients and people. 10% is the running of the business. And I wish I could even get rid of that. <laughs> 
This is Branch Out, a Connection Builders podcast. <laughs> well, let me ask you a few questions around serving clients. And this is, I think what I'm hearing from you is organizationally, you're trying to create a servant mindset. And really where the core mentality is, we're here to drive value for our clients. And, and not just in what we're doing today, not just in what we're, we obviously have our engagements and, and we have work we're committed to do for them, but we're there to ask questions, to understand, to be thoughtful, proactive, and look for ways to constantly continue to drive value for clients. Is that what I'm hearing in, in kind of the, the mentality behind that? Yes, we say it a little differently. You hear a term thrown around at AM a lot called RDTA, Relationship Driven Trusted Advisor. That's why we want our people thinking. We're relationship driven, trusted advisors with a broad mandate to help our clients be successful investors. That's what we're doing. That's how we approach it. And I think it served us well. For you as a leader, how do you build a culture on that? How do you build that as kind of the way of thinking internally? Well, it starts with the top right? I mean, the leaders and the partners, I mean, we have to lead by example, right? So I had a benefit, you know, because I started a practice from scratch, came from the big four myself, I was able to replicate the things that I've learned over my 15 years before I joined AM. the things that I liked in the big four, the things that I thought, you know, they're best of breed at, I mean, things like quality and risk management, training and development, I mean, you replicate some of that stuff. It's much easier to create a culture from scratch than to try to change an existing culture. So for example, one of the things we don't have in our group at AM is multi-levels of leadership. <laughs> we don't have regions, zones, like multiple office. I couldn't, in the United States, there is one PL, TAG, which is our transaction advisory group, TAG US. That's it. We staff nationally, we serve clients. It's not about who in the North region is available to serve this client. Like if the best person is sitting in the Southwest, well, that's the person we should get, right? Now, when you have an organization that's structured with all these regional and zones and service line leaders, it's very difficult to change that because you have to take roles away from people. But if you start from the beginning, and I was adamant from the beginning, you know, we have A&M's got A&M's everywhere, but my group in the US, we're in 10 cities with partners and teams. I'm not looking to put people everywhere. Where does it make sense? right? Because it's expensive to open an office. But from my perspective, I don't care what the LA office does versus the New York office versus Nashville or Chicago. It doesn't matter to me, right? I want everyone focused on building the US, if not the firm. So the way we look at things, you know, we always say an order of priority, right? If decisions have to be made, how are we going to prioritize that, right? Everyone always says client first. I say family first. There's no client that's more important than my family. I hate to say that, but it is. It's true. I'll admit it. So in my world and what I tell people, said differently, I have a personal leadership philosophy with a variety of points. And I share that with everyone. I said, hey, listen, this is the way we're going to run our business here at AM. You may disagree and that's okay. Just recognize that you may not be a good fit for us. But if you agree with our leadership philosophy, then great place for you, right? So I'm very open and transparent on that. But our priorities are family first, right? Then the client, then the firm, then your own personal division, and then yourself. Okay. And at some points in time, some of those things have to take priority over others, but over an extended period of time, there should be equilibrium amongst all. Okay. You know, there are times where, Hey, I got to check out my family's got a situation. Hey, no problem. We'll back you up. Go ahead. There are other times, you know, when you're in the middle of a deal, the deal waits for no one. You live for that deal. Right. But in our world, if we got to make a decision immediately, we're going to prioritize family over client, client over firm, 
firm over your division and division over yourself. And we try to get people to think that way. And when they don't think that way, because sometimes I, they don't, it's human nature, we correct them. And listen, it's also not a secret. Compensation drives behavior, right? Psychologically. So what you do is you work backwards. What are the behaviors you want from your people? And then make sure you align your compensation to recognize and reward those behaviors. So in our world, you know, AM is very much a meritocracy. We pay for performance, right? So it's not a time and grade recognition and reward system. We don't care what your background is, where you came from, how old you are. If you are delivering results and moving the needle, we will recognize and reward you for that. If we don't, our whole system falls apart. So I like when people deliver and then they challenge us that we have to recognize and reward them. So it's a true meritocracy. I like that model. But in a meritocracy, you also have to tell people specifically what their expectations are, right? And what I also like about AM, when we do annual reviews of staff and partners, we a lot of times bifurcate the discussion between performance and compensation. Because you know, when you combine those two, nobody cares about the performance discussion. They want to talk about the cash. We say, we don't even know the bonus numbers yet, but let's talk about your year, what you did, how good you were, how you can do better. And then we have a very brief conversation later on. Okay, here's your money. If you bifurcate that, the conversations on the performance are much more impactful. So, you know, I, I think, again, we're able to do these things because we started it from scratch. So we created the culture. And then as people came in, we have to just make sure we guard the culture. You know, we call it the A&M way. A&M, here's an interesting thing I'll share with you. And then I'll turn it back to you on a question. But A&M, from our founders, we have a shared set of six core values of the firm. And we sort of have a unofficial rule that at the beginning of every meeting or presentation, at least in my group in transaction advisory, we always start off with the global mission statement, right? Which I just mentioned about relationship-driven trusted advisors, helping our clients be successful investors. So every kind of deck starts off with that internally to remind everyone we're all rowing in the same direction. Because if you don't have that mission statement, it's like driving a car without knowing where you're going, right? And we're all just driving around aimlessly. I'm providing the direction, right? So we have that common mission statement. But then at the end of every internal meeting, like we have a partners meeting coming up in September, we always close with someone, typically someone who's been with us not too long, like a year or two, will talk about the A&M core values and what it means to them. So what's interesting about that is firm-wide, like I'll go to a meeting with our restructuring partners, their annual meeting, and someone's closing with core values. But it's the same core values we're closing with in tag and tax and everybody else. But people have a different spin on it, right? So you take someone, okay, you've been here a year or two, and I always say, oh, would you like to give the presentation? Yeah, we tell them in advance. It's not like sprung on them. Some people really take it to another level. They put videos together and they say, here's what the core values mean to me. And they give examples and they have fun with it. But it's passing those core values that we share from the founders to the staff over what next year is going to be our 40 year anniversary. We founded in 1983 and we're all aligning those core values across the firm, which is pretty cool when you think about it. There's a lot of history and things like that. It's cool. As you said, it's both forcing people to think about it both the presenter and the listener to, to really think on it. And I think so much of core values is about actually thinking through it and understanding. It's much more about the, the discussion of meaning and, and kind of coming to a common understanding of what we believe behind all of it. And at the same time, you're, you're building the culture behind it. That, that's such a cool approach to it. So it's amazing. And, you know, it's funny, like we do live those core values. Like sometimes we'll struggle with a decision that we need to make and we'll say, okay, well, 
what if we had to tell the client this or whatever? Well, that's integrity, right? And that's one of our core values. So we actually do really weigh them in the decision making, which is cool. One of our core values is fun. <laughs> fun is a good one. You don't see that in too many corporate handbooks, but it's in ours. Let's shift gears here for a minute. Let me ask you a question on you've done this over the, the last 16 years. You've built up this practice. You've had a lot of experience part of that. But during this kind of this process of building this practice, when you look back, what are things you've learned what, as a leader in your kind of your own development, not necessarily tactical business, like you as an individual, as the leader who has had to come up with, with building, but also guiding and strategic vision, everything that comes behind it. What are some of the big lessons? that jump out to you? I think you got to look at your career as sort of a continuum, right? When I was early in my career in those Arthur Anderson days, moving through the big four, things that seem simple, but most people don't do, positive attitude and willingness to learn. People want to work with people that want to work with them, right? So if you're positive, you know, when I go outside and I ask somebody to do something for me, if they're excited about it, it may not be the most glorious job, but people like to teach and train but they want to do that with people that want to learn. So if you want to learn, we'll teach and train you all you want. But if I go out there and someone doesn't want to do something, they think it's beneath them or they roll their eyes or they don't do a half-assed job, you know, I'm not going to waste my time with those people, right? So you kind of write them off and then you hurt yourself. So I think that positive attitude and that willingness to learn will take you very far in your career. I mean, I learn every day. I'm outside my comfort zone every day. I'm dealing with a variety of things I never in a million years thought I would deal with, but I'm learning, right? And I'm positive about it. I embrace that. So I think positive attitude and willingness to learn. I think, you know, I like and I try to hire people that have grit, you know, the power to persevere and have passion over an extended long period of time to achieve a goal. I call it grit. I like people who are gritty. That I think drives success. Other things that I would look at that I think make people successful, I would say more in the middle part of your career, if not where I am now, I like people that take ownership, think and act like an owner is what we say people who own the problem and the solution, right? We can discuss it, we can consult, but take ownership. People who have an entrepreneurial spirit, a fire in the belly. People who have an appropriate level of self-confidence in their own abilities, I think is important. I think one of the most important things though, out of all this that I've learned is the power of relationships. The power of relationships trumps almost everything else. And I think how you look at relationships, here's how I coach people. I always say, when you have a relationship with someone, obviously I would value the relationship with a client, right? That's obvious. But when you know you have a real relationship with somebody, that's when they value the relationship with you, okay? And I have a story when I was like a mid-level manager at Arthur Anderson, I was getting deals in from this one partner at a small private equity firm. And I was excited because he would call me directly, not the partner. And I was like, oh, this guy loves me. I'm doing all his work, you know, and for months went on. I, I did all this and he was happy and all that stuff. And then they had like a holiday party, this client, big holiday party. And I was invited. So I go to the holiday party and I see the guy. I'm like, hey, Tom, you know, and these are the days before video chats, right? Hey, Tom, how you doing? And he's like, do I know you? I'm like, Tom, it's me. It's Paul. Paul, Paul Arisano, you know, from author. Oh, oh yeah. Hi, Paul. How you doing? And he shook my hand a lot. I'm like, at that moment, I realized like, I thought I had a great relationship with him. But he didn't really value the relationship with me. He just knew I was a guy getting his work done. So do I really have a relationship with him? So like when I interview people and they tell me they have all these relationships, I'm like, listen, how many of these people, if you call them, are they going to pick up the phone and actually talk to you on a personal level? At one point, 
does the relationship, you know, it's no longer client and me, but it's we're friends, right? That's where it's gotten to a point where I, I, I introduce people like, well, this is my friend and my client, right? And we socialize and we genuinely enjoy each other's company. Friends want to do business with friends, right? That's the number one rule. And there have been plenty of times where I've screwed things up and I've lived to fight another day because of my relationship. It's not like, oh, get A&M out of here. Oh, no, that's Paul and his wife, Sylvia. Okay. Yeah. You know what, Paul? Yeah, I get it. Thanks for admitting you screwed this up. Okay. Let's just move on. And I'm still there, right? (laughs) So it's because of the strength of the relationships. That to me, relationships beat everything. This is Branch Out, bringing you candid conversations with leading middle market professionals. I appreciate kind of placing the value around relationships. And that that's something I've, I've always, and obviously some of the, the business and what we do today has a lot to do with helping to instill that mindset and, and where that drives value. But I would love to go back and dive into kind of the, the first couple you said, and then kind of bring it full circle to relationships to wind things down, starting with mindset. And, and you said you talked about mindset being really important and really a positive mindset. Share a little more. What, what do you mean when, when you're thinking about kind of where's a positive mindset benefit you or how do you see that helping a professional and and really being successful in their career? There's going to be things in your career that you don't like or you don't want to do or you feel bad about. And I think one of the things I've learned, you know, I used to get down and upset when I was younger, if I screwed something up or I was assigned something I didn't like, but you know, it's almost like this too shall pass. You realize if you keep your head down and just do the work, it will pass, right? So then you're on to the next one. And you know, as you get older and more senior in your career, you realize that whatever it is, just power through it and you'll come out a better person for it on the other side. And that's sort of the the positivity. Now, you know, think about that. You got to put yourself in, let's say your boss's shoes, right? Or the people above you, who do they want to work for, right? There was a study done, I think by Harvard Business Review, and it showed the four common traits among the most successful CEOs. And one of them was like, consistently delivering results. And think about it. People are going to gravitate naturally towards those people that are positive, that are hardworking, that want to work for them. You know, so you got to kind of show a little empathy and think about, you know, what the other person is looking at as an attribute in you. No, and I would argue too, and and mindset is, mindset can be challenging, right? We all go through ups and downs, right? You, You work in the deal world. It's a very relentless world at times. And there's a lot of work that can be done. There's a lot of things that can go sideways and all sorts of ups and downs behind it, right? And I look back in my previous life in, in investment banking and think about the, the deals that I worked on that fell apart at the 11th hour, right? We've all, I think anyone who's worked in that world been there, a huge lesson I certainly learned was I could approach it two ways. Being frustrated, being upset, being angry, being down, or being positive, working through it, and recognizing that not only did it help me how I engage with people around me and, and how people wanted to work with me, but it also it made it easier for me to push through and keep going to the next. So I, I think that's just it's a really undervalued part, I think, of recognizing how important it is to be intentionally positive in the work you're doing. And that doesn't mean that you have to act like everything's overly positive all the time, but just looking for the brighter side, looking for kind of a positive framing of whatever challenges you're faced with. Or even we've had people that have gotten upset because they don't get promoted when they think they should, right? And I'll say, listen, you're right to be upset. Okay. I know this was your expectation and here are the reasons why. And, you know, go vent to your mentor, take a week off or do whatever it is. You know, you're allowed to be upset. You're allowed to be pissed off for a period of time. Then you got to come back and say, okay, what do I want to do here? Am I going to let this like take over my life and career or am I going to move on and focus on 
moving forward and, and what, what it takes. So I, I think it's okay. You need to let that out and be upset. Do it in a measured, controlled manner. And then you got to make a decision to move on. You're going to let this own you or you're going to move on? 100%. So let's jump on the second one. You said learning, a learning mindset, continually looking to learn. How have you implied that or how, how have you seen that that be helpful in someone's career? Well, first of all, I like to surround myself with people that I can learn from. Okay. And as I've gotten older, I've become more adept at doing that. The easiest ones are the people that I work for, like my two co-founders and co-CEOs at a and I mean, I've been here 16 years. I'm still learning from them, right? They're, they're amazing. But even my peers, you know, my fellow business leaders of other divisions, I talk and we talk regularly and I ask them questions about what they're doing. They ask me questions about what I'm doing. We try to pick up moves from each other and share moves, which is great. So I learn from my peers. I learn from my partners in my practice. And I think you also have to be smart enough to learn from the people who work for you. And that's hard for some people to do. I've learned to do that. A lot of times they're closer to the action. They're closer to the field, right? So, you know, I travel globally all over the place to meet with our teams. And I have to recognize I don't know nearly as much as what our team does in China, in India, across Europe, in the Middle East. So I listen to them and I am smart enough to know how to build a business, but I work with them. And when they tell me things that, hey, Paul, you should do this. You know, I value honest and candid feedback, which is tough to get in my role. But the people that do give it to me, I really value that because I don't want to hear, oh, it's great. It's great. I want to hear what we can do better. So from one learning perspective, it's like you need to learn from the people above you, your peer group, and you got to be smart enough to learn from the people that work for you. That to me is great. And then on the flip side, the other thing I learned early on is the value of reading, believe it or not. When I was like a first year staff at Arthur Anderson, I was working on the audit of a large telecom company and the audit partner resigned to be the CFO of that company who I was working for. And one day in the company's conference room when I was working on the audit, the only people that were there were me and this audit partner who had announced that he was leaving to go join this public company. And he said, Paul, do you want to go to lunch? Now, we couldn't be further apart on the food chain. He takes me to lunch. And I'll never forget this. I said, Don, how did you become so well-versed in telecom? I mean, telecom is like a really specialized thing. And he goes, read it. So at a very early stage of my career, now I'm also like a news junkie, right? So I, I'm constantly bombarding myself with news. But I read, I don't read fiction. I don't have time for that. So if it's either it's either periodicals, news bombarding me on Twitter, on this and that. But you'd be surprised, nobody does that, right? So I know things like the value and access of information, how to get it and then act on it has been huge for me. And that's, you know, how you become a thought leader, right? Things like, I mean, I read the Harvard Business Review. I read the Wall Street Journal. My Twitter feed, I must have 250 industry sites that are pushed to me. And, you know, you use downtime when you're sitting on the subway or I'm waiting for some. I'm just scrolling that. Oh, good article here. I'll read it. And then if it's relevant for somebody else, I send it along. So I think from a learning perspective, it's people around you, clients, you know, everybody you can learn from. But also reading. I think it's an underestimate. I mean, I have a summer reading list of a few books that I'm trying to get through this summer. You know, <laughs> what's your number one book this summer? <laughs> what am I reading? So I'm reading now. Not all of them are self-help, for lack of a better word. One of the books I'm reading is the Alan Shipnick book on Phil Mickelson, because I'm a huge golfer. So he wrote an unauthorized biography on that. I'm reading a book called How Champions Think by Bob Rotella, you know, the famous psychologist. I have the book that was written on Bill Gross called The Bond King. That's another one that's on my... So what I do is I buy the books, stack them on my nightstand, and then I grab one for the beach or the commute. I just finished 
Goldman Sachs, The Culture of Success. Somebody who worked there wrote a whole book on the history of the firm and why they were so successful. I figured I could pick up some moves there. I, I like books on leadership, stuff like that. You know, so I, I'm always reading, I mean, I'm always reading periodicals, but I also have a handful of books that I'm always trying to trudge through. I echo the the reading comment. It, it is, I've, in the, the last five years of my life, I have read more than I, I did in the entire life previous to that. And it, it was kind of a, a new habit I set out to form and, and it wasn't always easy, but but now that I've formed it and I've, I've tried to read widely, it's wild what your brain will start to recall and the thoughts. And, and I think all too often we pick up a book and especially if you don't read often and it feels like you have to know every detail, you have to read it in detail, you have to feel like you're you're taking deep notes out of it. And when you kind of step back and there are some books that are worth doing that, but when you step back and just focus on just consuming, just learning and, and doing it more of a consistency thing than anything, it starts to compound faster than you realize. I was on vacation, I don't know, a couple of years ago, and I brought two books with me. I was on an island in the Caribbean, so all I did was read. And I brought two books that couldn't be more different. I bought, it was when the, the Stephen Schwartzman book came out, you know, the guy who runs Blackstone, he wrote a book. I forgot what it was called, but it was about his role in leadership lessons at Blackstone. And at the same time, Bob Iger wrote a book about his leadership lessons at Disney. So I had two CEOs, one of one of the biggest private equity firms and one of the biggest corporates, and I read them both in the same vacation. And it was amazing to see there were some common themes, but there were also vast differences between the way the private equity world thinks and the way the corporate world thinks. So that was a pretty good one. I love it. Let's jump on to your next one here just for uh, the sake of time. Grit. You said grit is an important element. What does grit mean to you? Well, you know, I, I think I mentioned it in its highest form. It's the passion to persevere over the long term to achieve a goal. And there's a woman, Angela Lee Duckworth. I don't know if you've heard of her. She does a great tech talk. She's written a book on grit, you know, called, I think what I quoted and it's amazing. So that's, you know, kind of at the highest level, but I dumb it down a little bit for me. And, and what I say is it's doing those things that other people don't or won't do, or that 98% of the population doesn't or won't do to get to the place that most people aren't. Right. And I think my willingness, there's always going to be people smarter than you. Right. I mean, I'm never the smartest person in the room ever, but I'm never going to let anybody outwork me. And people say that, but I actually do it. I mean, I remember when I was a young staff person doing deals, I would go, it'd be like Father's Day on a Sunday. And I would go to the diner with my dad and my mom and my sister. And then I would have them drop me off the train and go to work on a Sunday. And they'd be like, what are you doing? I'm like, I got work. And when I go to the office on a Sunday on Father's Day, you know who was there? Nobody, me. So, you know, I mean, it's things like that, that I didn't realize at the time, because that was just built into my DNA. But when I look back on it, that's contributed a lot to, to where I am. I'm the first person in my family ever to go to college. You know, and I went to a state school in upstate New York because economically, you know, there wasn't much we could afford. So, you know, I, I kind of come at things a little different. I, I, I joke around a little bit, but I'm, I'm sort of like a blue collar person in a white collar job. And that's grit, right? I'm gritty. I don't, there's nothing beneath me. I'm not big in hierarchical structures. I like more of a flat team environment where everybody knows their roles and responsibilities, but I don't like the hierarchical structure. I try to operate more as a team. And I think people take better to that. Now, you know, once in a while, somebody doesn't know their role and you got to remind them. But for the most part, people respect that and know their place and everybody works very well as a team. So, you know, when I'm hiring, I look for students, whether it's on campus or people from other firms that I'm hiring experience that have demonstrated grit. You know, and it's funny because, you know, going to state school, when I interned at Arthur Anderson, they were all Ivy League and other big name schools around me. And I'll be honest, I was a little intimidated. 
And then I realized early on, like they were no different than me. I mean, they might've been smarter and they might've had more money, but they didn't do any better than me. <laughs> in fact, I think I did better than most of them. Not that it's a competition, but I think if you just focus on doing what you need to do to be successful and just doing the work, a lot of it takes care of itself. I would add in there that in my own experience, grit and truly staying gritty has a lot to do with your personal expectations. And the the better you can align yourself with saying, I'm going to do what I have to do. And and I'm okay with that. Nothing is beneath me. And I'm willing to show up and and kind of all the way back to your initial story. You carry the bags, you carry the banker boxes, you that wasn't beneath you. And and I, I think oftentimes when I see individuals that struggle with a gritty mentality has more to do with a expectation that is misaligned with what the reality is to to truly be successful. And the the more you embrace that. Yeah. But that goes back to my earlier comments about founders mentality, taking ownership, entrepreneurial spirit. That is where sort of that grit comes into play. We want people that think and act like owners. And if you own the business, you know, you're going to do whatever it takes to be successful that you need to, you know, bill and collect from your clients in order to feed your family, right? That's the approach. Those are the people that are very successful under our model. So let me ask one final question then and kind of tie this all together. You had earlier, you talked about relationships and in relationships above all being important. Thinking about everything we just talked about, mindset, learning, grit, the, the entrepreneurial thoughts, how does that all tie in and, and how are they kind of the, the key to all of this? I think you have to have the basic, there's a model that you see out there. It's like a client service model and it's like a triangle. Have you ever seen that? Where the bottom of that, you have to bring the skill set and do the work and execute for a client at a very high level. And then at the top of that is where you're really value add, right? If you're not bringing the basics, right, at a very high level, you can't get to that value add. No one's going to care up here. And I think when you look at relationships, it's a two-way street, right? I value the relationship with the client, but they have to value the relationship with us and A&M. And if they're not treating, I mean, and I've to do this, unfortunately, if a client is not treating our people properly, I'll call up the client and say, listen, we're not doing anything wrong here. Your people are being unreasonable or they're berating. I mean, they're just beating on us and you got to lighten up. Otherwise, we're going to walk. I've had that conversation. The people that work at AM, I think, respect that, knowing that I have their back. But I could also have those conversations because of the relationships that I have with a lot of these clients that have come over 20 plus years. These are not new, it's long term. But what I teach people, everybody has a role to play when it comes to building relationships. This isn't just like the partners, right? When you look at a client deal team and you look at an A&M deal team, client service team, right? Everybody should be pairing up with the respective person their level, okay? So the associate should develop the relationship with the associate at the client and up the food chain. And then what happens is you move on to the next client or the next project, and there's a whole new team. The key is to maintain that first relationship while adding the second one. Do that again. Do that again. If you do that over an extended period of time, you've built a real network of relationships, right? Which is fantastic. But what also happens as you move up in your career, these people will move up as well. So I'm 51 years old, right? And I'm at the stage of my career that the relationships I built with people 20 years ago are only now starting to lack of a better word, pay off, because all these folks are now in leadership positions in various places, right? And what I also teach the people that work at A&M, and what I say is, when it comes to relationships, you have to understand 
that just like you have personal and professional goals, these individuals also have personal and professional goals. And if you can help them achieve not just their professional, but their personal goals, that's when they'll really value the relationship. Like I've had clients call me who say, Paul, listen, I got a new deal. I'm up for partner this year. Okay. This can't go wrong. I need your best team. And I'm like, listen, we got you. And I'll tell the team, listen, not that we wouldn't do anything else, but you need to be all over this hypersensitive. I'm going to keep an eye on it. And I'll tell the client, we got you. I'm going to help you. So then when that person gets promoted off of the good work, you've helped them be successful. They're dragging you along for the ride, right? So it's a very much alignment of interest with the client because when they win, you win, right? If they don't win, and you know, I say this with clients all the time, like everyone's like, oh, you know, we want to partner with our clients. What does that really mean, right? We put our money where our mouth is. If you make money, we should make money. If you don't make money, we shouldn't make money. And I believe in that. And I live that. And I put my money where I'm at this. And I think that demonstrates a little bit differently than what a lot of other firms do, right? So it's supporting folks. If you understand what motivates them, not just professionally, but also personally, that'll get you there. And then it's also more, I try to think like my clients think. So if I'm running a PE firm, a $7 billion PE firm, and you know I have a relationship with the managing partner, but I'm involved with his deal. You know, one of these partners, you know, I, I learned a lesson the hard way once. This is interesting. So we worked on a deal. There was an issue on the deal. And we made it very clear that, you know, EBITDA may be materially misstated, right? We said it, it was like key findings 1A, right? In the report, we have emails to the law firm to be aware of this issue. We have emails to the deal team at the client to be aware of the issue. Sure enough, they deal junkies, they get the deal, they do the deal right out of the box, issues the issue, right? The managing partner calls me, Paul, what is happening here? And I said, hey, did you read the report? You know, key findings, page 1A? No. Okay. We talked to your law firm about it. Did you see we addressed this in the purchase agreement? No. Okay. We told your team, including the younger partner on the deal. Did you talk to your deal team? No. And I said, well, what do you want for me to do? He goes, you know what you should have did? If it was that important, you should have picked up the phone and called me. Did you call me? And I said, shit. I said, I didn't do that. And he goes, if it's that important, I'm not reading the report. I'm not talking to the law firm. I'm not talking to the deal team. You need to make sure it gets to me. I trust you. You're our trusted advisor. And I'll never forget that I got burned over it. He was right. And now I tell all my team, if there's a major issue, don't assume it's getting to the right people. And yes, you may burn a little political capital with the junior guys by going over their head, but you're doing what you believe is right. And you live to fight another day. I've had clients tell me they like working with us at AM because we don't just rubber stamp stuff. We, I've actually told clients, I don't think you should do this deal. <laughs> and they don't like to hear that, but they respect it. They want people who are going to challenge their duty. I had this, the, the partner on the deal was like coming at me. Well, Paul, you know, you're raising all these issues. What would you do? I said, unless you can get, I didn't just throw the problem. I said, unless you can get this, this, and this, then I wouldn't do this deal. Your natural instinct is to cater and serve the client, whatever you ask, whatever you want, but you can't do that. Like that's the real relationship-driven, trusted advisor type situation. Those are real stories. I've, I've had that happen to me and I've learned the hard way. That was uh, an excellent story. And what I hear from you, and the, I think the lesson out of all of that is 
if you really are focused on, on the relationship and doing the right thing for the client, it's not just doing whatever they ask, no matter what. I mean, I guess at the end of the day, but it's doing what they're really asking you to do, not just get it done, not just go through the, the process and the motion that you have to do, but really stepping back and saying, well, what is right? What do they really want? Understanding it. Correct. Yeah. I see the, the relationship element of that one. It's empathy. You have to put yourself in their shoes. You have to stop, take yourself out of just your thinking, your myopic view and put yourself into their shoes. What's important to them? understand the business, the, the, the dynamics at hand, and then make a decision, make a call along the way that is driven it really driving towards accomplishing that goal. And I, I think that it's the, the right way of thinking and, and one that, that I hope more and more individuals will continue to embrace. And, I, and I, love, I love that story behind that. So Paul, I appreciate you coming on here. I appreciate you sharing stories. I appreciate sharing the, the thoughts and wisdoms. We covered some, some really great stuff there. And I, I think- Alex, that- I gotta be honest with you. People pay good money for this stuff and I'm just giving it to you for free because you're a nice guy. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. No, I, I really do. It just was, this was a great conversation. Your, your stories were awesome. And just the, the, the wisdom that came out of there and, and the lessons, I, I love the, the mindset, the learning, the grit, the entrepreneurial thinking, the relationships, but just everything you've, you've kind of learned along the way there. And I, I hope for our listeners that they've gotten some good takeaways out of all of this. So again, I appreciate you coming on here. That's good. I like to set the bar low and hopefully over deliver. So. No, you, you did excellent. That's the other secret of my success. That's the other secret to my success. Well, thank you a ton for being on here. And for any of our listeners, if they want to reach out to you, can they find you on LinkedIn, I assume? <laughs> oh, yeah. You can definitely find me on LinkedIn. I have a uh, very prolific on it. People say they open up their LinkedIn every morning and they're right. <laughs> I can second that. I see you on there every day for sure. Most of the time, the very top of the feed. And I got to be honest, I'm going to be very honest. I have someone that helps me with that. I can't do it all myself, but a lot of it is me. A lot of it is leverage and scale. You you have to find ways to accomplish what what is important to you. No, I I think that's awesome. Thank you again so much for being on here, Paul, and, and appreciate everything you shared. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for tuning in this week. Share this podcast with your professional network to help others connect, grow, and excel. Like what you hear? Leave us a review. And don't forget to subscribe now.